podcast one production. It's the 25th of May, 1994. I'm sitting in the main lecture theater at the European Center for Nuclear Research, CERN. And as I look around, I can see that the hall is completely full. Every seat is taken. There's a ring of people standing around the upper levels of the theater. It's not just full, it's chockers. There's a feeling of electricity in the air. And if I could connect that Back to something else. I suspect it was a lot like the feeling in the room right before Douglas Engelbart gave the mother of all demos. When he revealed the future of computing, it was connected, responsive, and all of it linked together. Now, it had already been more than 25 years since that mother of all demos. Engelbart's grand vision for how computers could augment human intellect it hadn't been realized. Until now. The 300-plus folks in the theater at CERN were the vanguard for a project that would realize Engelbart's dream with a new technology known as the World Wide Web. Proposed way back in 1989, the World Wide Web sought to tie together the information residing on every computer system accessible through a still very small Internet, starting with those computers at CERN. And the idea caught on because, unlike Engelbart's online system, the web was very simple. And because the web was free. And that meant that I could download the source code for the World Wide Web, open it up, modify it, and, with my friend Tony Parisi, create a virtual reality interface to the web. Any 3D that you see today in a web browser is the grandchild of that tech. It's known as VRML that Tony and I invented back in the first days of 1994. We built our virtual reality interface and then I dropped an email to the fellow who'd invented the web. He was named Tim Berners-Lee and I told him what we'd done. And he mailed me back. He invited me to present at a conference that he was putting together at CERN, bringing together all of the researchers working to build upon his World Wide Web. And so I went to CERN and waited for Tim Berners-Lee to come to the podium, open his conference, and share the tools that would change the world. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology changes the way we live and work and learn. And on this third series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. In this final part of our three-part history of computing, we take a look at a technology so central to 21st century civilization that it's become as invisible as electricity. The web changed everything, and it's only just beginning. So on this episode, we'll take a look at the trajectory of this most used of technologies and where it's going over the next billion seconds. 
In 2019, the web will see its 30th birthday. That's almost a billion seconds into a universal system for the sharing of knowledge. Now, the web has changed us. We don't live or think as we once did just a generation ago. That's not really a story of technology. We can point to smartphones and the web as the way it happened. But what happened? That's about us. Human beings learning to share at global scale with one another. A billion seconds ago, that's not something we knew how to do. We had to grow into the web, step by step, trial and failure, learning all the way, learning how to learn. And the web, it's not a product. It's not even a service. It's a process. And it's a very human process. And yes, fortunes have been made and lost on the web. But the story, the real story, the bigger story is one of sharing. The web begins with sharing. Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the father of the web, shared his work freely. Now, that sounds easy today, but back in the early 1990s, the world really didn't have an idea of open source software, and it took a fair bit of convincing to get the higher-ups at CERN, which is where he was doing his work, the European Atom Smasher, to get those folks to release his work free of charge for anyone who wanted to use it for anything at all. And that single act, it opened up the floodgates to the web that we have today, a web that isn't owned by one company or one nation, but it's open to everyone, everywhere, on an equal basis. And one organization stands in the forefront of a free and open web, the Mozilla Foundation. Mozilla started as the first commercial web browser. But over a quarter century arc, that's evolved to become the soul and conscience of the open web a web that benefits everyone. Now, as Chief Research and Development Officer at Mozilla, Sean White keeps the foundation on a course toward a web that's open for all, not just today, but over what the web evolves into across the next billion seconds. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Sean to our show. Welcome. Nice to see you, Mark. Okay, let's start with the beginning. How did Mozilla, the company, evolve into Mozilla the foundation and, I guess, the protector of the web. Sure. Well, it's worth talking about the structure that we have. So there really are multiple entities here. And there is the Mozilla Foundation. That is a nonprofit. That is the organization that really thinks about advocacy and education. And when people are donating, that is the organization they're donating to. It is the parent company of the Mozilla Corporation. And the Mozilla Corporation is the organization that actually builds the software, does the heavy lifting on the technical work. If there is a new codec that is coming out or the Firefox browser, those things get done in the corporation. And so what happens then is you have people who are doing uh, some of that heavy lifting around the the products for the, the corporation. They focus on that. And then you have all of the advocacy work, and that gets focused in the foundation. Okay, all right. So we have these two pieces. We have the corporation that's making the bits, banging the bits out, but the foundation that's acting as the philanthropic arm going, okay, these are the things that we see are important. So here, corporation, here's some money to go make these important things happen. Where do we start to create that sense of priorities? How do you get a sense of what's important to focus on? Sure. For all of this, we go back to our mission. Right? And that mission is an umbrella mission for everything that happens throughout the organizations. Um, that really is about the Internet as a global public resource, open and accessible to all. Mm. And if you think about that, right? Global, not just in the United States, but all around the world. A public resource, something that is not owned by a particular government, not owned by a 
particular company, but really is, in the old school polis way, right, this public thing. Of the people. Of the people. Um, and that, that, that open and accessible part is important to us as well. Openness is as much about who gets to use it and mm -hmm. who gets to create it mm -hmm. as the innovation that comes from it. Right? Think about the early days of the Internet, which I know you and I both spent a lot of time in. There was so much openness there mm -hmm. um, that anybody could innovate. It was easy, right? Someone wants to uh, make something off of SMTP. Somebody wants to make something SMTP off of... SMTP being the, the thing that email uses yes. to send emails around yes. the internet. Yes, that's right. Um, or uh, some of the early HTTP stack, the stack that is the server for the web, and the primary server for that, right? Um, anybody could do that, mm -hmm. and it would work. And so you didn't have these silos that were created. That, that generally means more innovation, and that generally means that it's better for the end user, for the people who are using it. Okay, so we definitely went through a period of extremely rapid innovation. If we want to sort of chart out what the web, had, the journey the web has gone on over this last billion seconds, so from 1989 to the present, what are the key features that leap out at you? What's the story that we've told ourselves as we've built the web? Because the web today is both the same and different than that web. No, that's a great question. And I'm curious to hear what you think about it as well, but at least from my point of view. Um, there are several things that really reflect what the, the spirit of the web is. One of those is just linkability. Everything has a link. Um, and you see that reflected in the ability for uh, me to hand you a URL, me to hand you a link. I can find anything, right? The, the technical terms of the URL or the URI that, that talk about both the protocols, but what that thing is, mm -hmm. really interesting, right? You, you, you step back, you think about that almost from a, a semantic point of view, right? You're, you're, it's this pointer to a thing, that, and, and it's right. a pointer that I can give to you and you'll be able to get to the thing as well. That's right. Consistent, persistent. And, um, and you can see some systems where that starts to disappear. The openness part of it is important. Open standards, open access, mm. Um, so that you think about some of the early things that were created on the web. Um, anybody, uh, a student in some university, someone in their garage, could create interfaces and user experiences to those standards. Mm -hmm. This is really important. Right? So I, I know you have been thinking about user experience, user design over a, a long arc. Um, and we, we can talk about how that has changed on the Internet. But... Being able to act as a user agent to all of that mm -hmm. has a, a, is a key part of that web experience because that means that we're not going to have just one user experience. We might have multiple user experiences to that information, to that content, to what it looks like. So it means that if there's a document or if there's a movie or if there's a whatever, something that's being shared, then you can get it in the way that you want and I can get it in the way that I want. And I can come along and develop some new way of showing it to you that makes even more sense to you. That's right. Some of that comes from an incredible amount of work that's done in standards bodies. Mm. Some of it uh, gets done uh, through the actual hard work of creating open source products and libraries and the, the systems for that. But all of that really involves multiple stakeholders, and that, that is one of the 
key creation points that happens there. Uh, so you, you asked me for my own opinion. I want to ring in with something, which it, it's a point. And I've, I've talked to a number of the early web folks about this. One of the first versions of the Mozilla browser had a full set of tools in it so that you could write your own web pages. It wasn't just about web browsing, but it was about creating the web. And that, that was very important because then people felt very empowered because here is this wonderful new thing. And not only could they use it to, to go find information, but they could create their own information. But there was always this, this, this thing around, well, okay, I've created this web page and now I have to hit the publish button. I have to publish this web page. And that was always where it went dot, dot, dot. So because particularly in the early days, what did that mean? Where was that page? How would other people get to that page? Was that page on the World Wide Web or was it living just inside your own company? Or, and in a lot of ways, we've, we've, we put that into the too hard bin. And what happened was we ended up with companies where the, you don't have to publish. You can just post something on Facebook or on Twitter or on wherever. And they're going to handle all that, that stuff behind the scenes for you. Have we lost that sense of the fact that this is a medium where we publish, not where a big company is publishing for us? There's certainly a change in what felt like an early symmetry to the web. Mm. Um, Meg Withcott, a uh, researcher, originally met at uh, Interval Research, who's done a lot of amazing work, pushed on the notion of symmetry very early on. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had that where I could run my own server, my own browser, some of that got integrated into the software itself. Part of that was that, um, on the one hand, you always want developers doing the hard work for end users, but part of that was that there just wasn't the level of complexity at the web. Mm. So... Less moving pieces. Less pieces all together, right? So you think about the, 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 the first parts, right? You, just HTML, nothing else, right? Then you get a stack now with HTML and JavaScript and CSS. So another level of complexity, um, but still very tractable. I mean, a lot of the people that we have, we have something called MDN, uh, which is a developer network. 12, 13 million people use it. Right, and this is, and frankly, if I have a question about how to do something on the web, that's my first point. That's where you go. That's right. What's fascinating is that many of those people don't identify as developers. They identify as creators. So I'm not a developer. I make things. And that gets back to the, the point you're making, is that the original web really was attractive to people who saw symmetry in this both creation and consumption of content. Um, it feels like we have lost that in some of the complexity, but also for business reasons. Um, some of the businesses find it easier if they can take more control or have uh, more ways in which they can uh, address the end user. And, you know, I, even I find myself, because I, would, I have run all of my own websites by hand for 20 years because I'm, 25 years because I'm old school and I'm happy to do that. But just in the last year, I moved sites to, to, to WordPress, not just the platform, but the whole managed service, because actually I no longer have time. I've got to actually do a podcast episode or do an interview or whatever. And so you find these trade-offs that, yes, you want it to be easy. You want it to be well-managed. And someone's coming along and saying that uh, I'll do that for you. But we don't maybe always know that there is a trade-off around how much you can create versus how much you can control. That's exactly right. And it's one of the challenges for the web going forward, right? And 
I think one of the things we find, um, and this is probably true as much in politics as it is in the technical things that do, the things we create, is that when there's a loss of agency, mm. that's when there's this frustration. There's a, a feeling of loss of control. And so it's not necessarily that we need everybody to know how to do everything in the stack, but they should feel the agency that they could do what they wanted. They get to control what it looks like and how it shows up. And, you know, we can go back to the automobile, right? That There was a time when pretty much anyone who had an automobile felt comfortable opening it up, taking bits out of the engine. The engine wasn't particularly complex. And Model T is notorious for this. That you could just sort of take it apart and put it back together. But even if you didn't, you knew how it all worked. And you were comfortable in that. And it does seem like we've gone through that same process with the web. At the early days, people were either tinkering or just like, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a file over there and it's coming into my browser and bam. And now it's just like, you know, you, you tap on a button and we are only dimly aware. And we had Robert Tersick explaining how web advertising and all of the instantaneous auction services happen and that all of this happens within sort of a fifth of a second that your, your attention is going out for bid and then ads are being chosen and all of this. And it becomes this very complicated system. And you, you wonder, I mean, we clearly aren't going to recover complexity, but can we recover, I guess, some transparency? Will we be able to see how that works? It really is up to the, the portals, the technologies, the mm. applications that give you access to that, right? um, and whether they want to show you that or not. I mean, you'll, you'll find you know, Firefox browser, we, we work very hard to be transparent about what you're seeing, what we do. Um, even our privacy policy, the, the, the spirit of the policy is no surprises. Yeah, right. right. Um, but it, that is true even when you are going to a, a website. If we, and again, this is where we have to do the hard work for people. We don't expect them to be experts in cryptography. We don't expect them to be experts in security. But we want to reveal as much as possible so that they can make choices and decisions on their own. Now, you have a very long background, 25 years or more in interaction design, you know, not just that you're running R&D here. From your point of view, as someone who is steeped in that tradition, as a doctorate in this, how do you see our own interactions with the web evolving? How has that been changing its nature? It's certainly gotten better. <laughs> and so I, I remember I've... Uh, I had interned at Apple uh, when some of this was first coming out. Mm-hmm. I was doing two projects, one that was um, uh, the year after that, one in virtual reality, mm-hmm. uh, one on web browsers. Uh, actually, go for space and then web browsers. Mm-hmm. Sort of that. Uh, and I remember when we first started doing some of the things on the web, it felt like it actually set user interface and UX design back by about five, ten years. right? Because you had just started getting control about how you could lay out things and something as simple as buttons and interaction and doing fairly sophisticated things with the interface. And uh, suddenly you had to go back to links and text and not having a whole lot of control over what was reflected there. But that was a trade-off, right? That was a trade-off about that simplicity, about Mm. the accessibility for anybody to put something in there. So much of that has changed uh, over that arc of 25 years so that today the tools that we have for creating an experience, both the, the protocols and the standards, um, you know, the 
get technical, but the, the CSS grid layout. Right. right? So, and, it, and you, for the listeners, this is a way of making sure that things show up at the same spot, whether it's on your smartphone or it's on your laptop or it's on the moon. That's right. Um, right. The, the, you know, these, uh, these, these tools, both the standards and the ways to create them, have gotten much, much better. Mm. And so th- that's actually where we have, when I mentioned the people who actually come to MDN, it is these creators who are actually pushing that. People who identify, oh, well, I'm actually a designer. Right? I mostly use Photoshop or I mostly use some other tool that is similar to that. Right. And um, I think the thing that is really interesting in this starts to push a little bit forward is what do those tools look like when we are moving beyond the screen, right? So it, if you think about the hard work we had to do, we started off with one platform. That was a screen and a keyboard mm-hmm. and a mouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the original demo, right? right. <laughs> from the mother of all demos, <laughs> all forward, yeah. That, that, that's right. Um, and then you started to have, uh, you know, initial bifurcation, laptops, and then suddenly with different screen sizes, and then suddenly you have mobile, and so you have to have responsive design for all of these things. Um, An approach which means I'm going to try and give you something that looks roughly the same in terms of an experience, uh, but acknowledges the context uh, that you are in. Right, exactly. Or if it does look different, and sometimes they do look different, is more appropriate because you're viewing it on a smartphone. That's right. And wouldn't make sense if you were looking at it on a laptop. Yeah, that's right. Um, but now take that. Um, we're asking the question today, what do those tools look like mm. if you are now doing uh, the web in VR? What does it look like if you're doing the web in speech and language? What does it mean if uh, every device around you is connected and you are somehow looking for those same tools to author um, and give a consistent design and experience that is relevant to the context in which you're using it. And we're back talking to the chief R&D officer of Mozilla, Sean White. Now, Sean, you did mention the new kinds of interfaces that we're just starting to see. I had a very interesting and intense conversation with another colleague who's also very deeply into interaction design, he is extremely concerned because he could see a time in the next five to ten years where basically all of the interfaces to the web are voice interfaces and that all of those voice interfaces are controlled by a few companies. So it might be Amazon with Alexa and Apple with Siri and Google with Google Assistant and Microsoft with Cortana. And, but the thing is, there's always a corporate name that's attached to each of these. And he says, if things are going on like this, Mark, then the only way you'll be able to buy or learn or whatever it is, is by going through one of these things. And each of these things is owned by someone and will have their own particular view of the world that serves them and not serves you. So it's no longer an open web. And he really does feel that if we continue on this way in five or ten years, there won't be an open web, even if we have a voice web. What do, do you do? You agree with that? Do, do you, what can we do about that? It's a very real challenge, and one we're aware of. Um, speech, language, dialogue—the way you and I are talking right now—is mm. an old technology. Yeah. About 100,000 years ago, we started forming ways in which we could communicate. So we've honed that in terms of how we use it to express ideas, how we use it to express intention. It's clear, and this is not new, but it's clear that that is a 
great way for us to interact with computation, with other things, uh, uh, even other entities if we wanted to, right? Um, separating out the whole AI discussion. Yeah. And so um, if you look at the playing field today, mm-hmm. you have a number of, as you pointed out, very siloed systems that are, depending on how you look at them, very closed. That is, uh, you have to go through their their channel to do that. Right, and if they don't want you in their channel, then you're not going to be able to play. That's right. Um, we believe there should be a way for there to be more open ecosystems. And that comes from many of a number of different approaches. One would be that those ecosystems open up and they start to connect. Mm-hmm. One would be that uh, an additional ecosystem or an additional layer is created there. Uh, and another is you just, uh, as a layer, mm-hmm. right? and another is that there just is an, a third or fourth or fifth ecosystem that runs in parallel that competes. In that last example, the Linux operating system, which listeners may or may not be aware of, and yet powers all of the Android smartphones in the world. So it's, it, But it's an open source system that anyone can come in and it competes against Mac OS, it competes against Windows, it competes against any number of pr- proprietary operating systems that are made for very big pieces of computing equipment. And, and so that's a, 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 an example of a very successful third version. All right, so that's, that's kind of one way. I mean, another way is, you're right, getting everyone to, to agree to play together nicely. It is also true that a lot of that is changing right now. Mm. That is, I don't think anybody really knows what the full... Uh, palette of speech interaction is going to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do know, uh, depending on who you ask, that anywhere between 30 to 50% of the queries going to Google now are through speech. Right. Uh, So that's a simple one, but if you think about all the complexity of how you and I talk together, how we we talk to the things around us and the people around us, there's much more than that. And there's this other issue which really goes back to equity and access as well that we might not think about, but I have a very good friend in Australia who has a brother who's developmentally disabled and had never been on the internet, never really used a computer, and then got a Google gadget, whatever the heck it is, one of them, and was able to have a conversation. And that changed absolutely everything. And it opened up a world for him because then this computer can actually do things and then read a Wikipedia article or whatever. And so give him access that he's never really had before. And so we can see how this new interface could also be enormously liberating if we see it right. So, I mean, is this going to be the case where we're going to have to be very careful where we can see the liberation, but we have to be very careful that we don't get chained down? Always. <laughs> Always. But, but the, the interesting question is, what are the different points of leverage and the approaches for that? So let me yes. tell you a couple that I, I think are really important. Um, one of them is who just gets to build speech recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the systems historically have been closed. Right. And so uh, we have a project right now, Deep Speech, which actually came in response to some researchers at another unnamed company who felt like they couldn't actually do things out in the open. And so we got a bunch of stakeholders together. We do these multi-stakeholder projects. Lots of people contribute and uh, build an open source speech rec and text-to-speech system. Now, part of that is that in order for these systems to work, you kind of have to feed them billions and billions and billions of fragments of conversation, right? Isn't that kind of how they learn? 
that is, and like kids, so this gets into machine learning a little bit, right? Yeah. So you think about machine learning, and I, I, uh, I know you've had conversations about that uh, on the podcast before, but the, the way I like to think about it is it's teaching children, right? right? So you're not giving them a, a specific heuristic, but you're going to give them examples and lessons, and so they pattern match and learn from those uh, examples right. and lessons. And you correct them when they get it wrong. That's right. Yeah. Um, I give them examples of what is true, what is not. And so um, one of the interesting things that happened very early on with speech recognition is that uh, the systems were really good at understanding white male Northern Californian voices. <laughs> there wouldn't happen to be two of those on this podcast right now, not at all. <laughs> well, it, and and it was not from maliciousness. No. no. Um, but it was... Uh, uh, from lack of really thinking about the global implications for it, right? And so uh, there's another project that we've started and we have a number of different stakeholders now joining called Common Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is about exploring what we can do to have uh, a public corpora uh, uh, that is a data set of all the different languages in the world and all of the different accents mm-hmm. in the world. And what's interesting is as as soon as we announced this, as soon as we started putting this together, Mm. um, we had people and countries come out of the woodwork to say, oh, yeah, you know what? Those systems don't recognize my voice. They don't know who I am. I don't have a voice in this. And And that's a glaring problem both commercially and in terms of access, right? Because those people will then, just in a commercial sense, never adopt those products either because they can't talk to them or those products can't talk to them. But there's a, a greater issue, which is that with languages disappearing, if we force everyone to use English or Mandarin or whatever it might be so that they can talk to all of the new interfaces, then we're only going to accelerate that disappearance of all of these other languages. That's right. And... Uh, when- we believe diversity is important to innovation, to our society, to growth. And so that, that, that project has actually been very successful in bringing some of these stakeholders together, including some of the, the large companies and other potential partners. They see it, they try to figure out how to work with it. Um, because right now, all of those data sets, the ones you mentioned, right, they live uh, inside of companies and are very tightly protected. And to be fair, there are lots of mine uh, <laughs> landmines there, right? Like, uh, if I'm going to do a public corpus uh, and I'm going to have your voice in it, how do I protect your privacy? Right. Right. How do I actually make sure that we are doing the things that we also care about in terms of first principles for the, the privacy of the individuals? Right. And that's also for any system that's capturing my voice in order to learn my accent, my speech pattern, my idiom. It, you immediately raise all of those issues because you really are getting very, I guess, intimate with me and you do not want to expose me unnecessarily to provide that level of connection. And this is, you're right, it's always going to be one of these difficult points. This brings up another point. So very recently in Australia, our parliament passed a set of laws called the Ability and Access Act that mandate that all encryption methods must come with specific backdoor systems so that they can be unlocked by presumably the national security apparatus under control of the attorney general. It's all supposed to be quite regulated. 
But when you see things like this, when you see systems that are being designed to be less secure, even with the best possible intentions, how do you then start to think about what security is going to mean going forward over the next 30 years? Because there's a sense that the web, if not if not becoming less secure than it once was, is certainly under more attack than it once was. And that's certainly true. And uh, just starting off, uh, we certainly hold the position that backdoors are a mistake. Any, any moment that you make a, uh, a building, a structure, a system less secure, right, that's going to open it up not just to a, a, a government who may have good intentions or may not, governments change, um, but it, it, it creates a, a vulnerability. And, and you just, you don't want vulnerabilities in those systems. And having said that, I mean, we see an increase in the, the need for not just security, but for the transparency for users to understand what's going on. Right? Um, it is fascinating. We have a, a system, Firefox Monitor, which uh, lets you know whether the email address you used has ever um, basically been disclosed, right? Uh, whether there was a break-in, someone stole 100 million usernames and passwords, and were you amongst them, right? And most people aren't very aware that somewhere along the way, yeah, their, their username and password was stolen. And that's not even a particularly sophisticated security uh, measure, but just even for what we, we share and how we uh, express that, a lot of these seems to be getting worse. We see more, uh, we see more attacks. We see more um, things that don't even feel like attacks, but are a, a, a non-transparent use. Like, for instance, Bitcoin mining in uh, inside in of an application yep. or a browser. You hit a web page, and all of a sudden, your computer slows down because there's malicious code inside the web page. Right. Well, and this this is really where we take the notion of being the user agent yeah. seriously. Right. That is, um, in some ways, you need. You need augmentations. You need a super suit. You need something to go out into the world to help you so that... Mozilla um, Gundam. <laughs> this is, we, we have posters that look very much like that. It is not the company that, uh, uh, that is going to take care of you. It is the, the, the trusted agent that's going to take care of you, right? And so that you can also still have all of your agency, right? Mm. We don't want to do it all for you. We want to let you make those choices. It is interesting. We were talking about the, the speech and language, and you were naming off these different systems. And for the most part, if I ask you, well, who does Siri work for? Mm. Right? Or who does Alexa work for? Oh, Alexa works for Jeff Bezos. I think everyone <laughs> knows that. That's right. And, and, and there is an interesting question. Well, what does that look like when there is uh, someone who really does work for you? Mm. Right, that that is protecting your interest. That is your user agent. Okay, the former CEO of Mozilla, Brendan Eich, a few years ago, struck out to do his own project to bring payments to the web with the Brave browser. And we've talked about the Brave browser in my uh, podcast, Cryptonomics. So he created a coin called the Brave Coin. So his own ICO and sold up very quickly and he created a browser framework to allow for web payments now the web payments in that case were being used so you could pay publishers so that you didn't have to have ads and they wouldn't have to track you and it was designed to be a solution to a very well-known set of problems that 
some people are, are terming the Internet's original sin. But it points up to the fact that here we are 30 years in and we still don't have any payment system that's at all web native, right? Everything has to refer back to a credit card basically at some point. And there has been, and you have participated in a whole bunch of work on web standards so that people can have their credit card information securely stored in the browser and rather than having to type it in every time. And all of that's happened over the last couple of years and everyone's sort of happy with it. But we don't have this idea of having other kinds of payment systems, which, again, when you get to parts of the world where credit cards are uncommon, which is most of the world, which is still using the web, most of the world's using the web, but doesn't have a credit card. How do we need to start to think about where payments and how we deal with money, how we deal with this whole other world of the real things and the transactional things inside of this amazing system for sharing that we've built? So starting off with web payments, um, there's a set of standards it has taken a long time to get some of those put together, and now the browsers are adopting those. We release those as well. I think one of the, the things you point out, though, is that it's the original sin of the Internet. And it, it's as much about that, that split between the direct relationship between the creator and the consumer um, and the kind of disintermediation of that, right? Mm-hmm. That That is... Um, advertising models and all, all these other things because there wasn't a good way for you and I to have a value exchange. Right. And I, so I couldn't flip you a coin or a penny or even a pat on the back. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there are lots of approaches to that. Um, I was talking to a startup two days ago that was looking at ways in which they do micropayments. You have paywalls, you have subscriptions, you have all of these different things. Some are going to be appropriate for some countries that have uh, a particular infrastructure for that kind of payment, some appropriate for others, but it is still an unsolved problem on the open internet. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting is that it, it will only get worse, and I think there's an observation about this around attention that's important. So um, Terry Winograd, one of the sort of early pioneers around HCI and AI before that. And one of your mentors. Uh, One of my mentors. uh, uh, Would often talk about the fact that our our most important prized possession was our attention. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a good way to do the transaction between attention and value creation for an individual, someone who's creating, whether they are doing a a podcast, creating a piece of software, creating a new movie, creating a song, creating a web page, creating news and real journalism. Mm -hmm. And so um, what we're seeing right now is a number of startups who are able to come up with an interesting potential system for that, um, but they still need the adoption of the broader infrastructure, which means they need the web browsers to adopt that. Or, and this is a place where I think it's kind of interesting, uh, it gets adopted in some of these new interaction channels. So it, whether that means speech, and there is a new exchange through speech, right? Interestingly, potentially embedded in the speech itself. Give them a or, tip. Right? You <laughs> might just say something like that, and then bam, right. That's right. I mean, what's interesting, I think the point you just made is it really should be an interaction problem, not a technical problem. Right. 
Yes, it should be, but we still are in this area where, for some reason, this is proven, although it doesn't seem technically a hard problem to solve, because it is literally money on the table, it has proven to be socially a harder problem to solve. Well, there are, there are hard problems to solve here, right? So the, the, the cost of doing a transaction, if you go through the regular clearinghouse systems, is high. Yes. And so most of the innovation actually is, well, it's not that I wanted to give you $10 for this article. It's that I wanted to give you a penny yeah. for this. Right? And, and I can't because it's going to cost me 25 cents to put that on my credit card. Yeah, that's right. Right. That's right. And, and so most of the innovation has come up from the technical point of view, not necessarily from the standards and protocols that are built into those systems, but into the, the actual ways in which you then are going to try and do some of the clearing for that. Or in the case of what uh, Brave did, you create a, an additional uh, token. Okay. Final question. What's the most important thing that the web needs over the next billion seconds and that it doesn't have yet? And how do we get it? I only get one, huh? <laughs> no, 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 no. You can give me a list. Yeah, all right. Uh, so I, I, I think there are a few things, right? Um, one of those is uh, openness. We need to maintain openness. And so there's a very disconcerting thing that's happening right now where uh, Edge, Microsoft Edge, is adopting the engine, Chromium. Okay, so, so to be clear for our listeners, the way things get drawn on the screen in a web browser, there's a whole bunch of code there, and everyone is now using exactly the same code, basically, All right, which is good in one sense because it means everything looks the same, but it's bad in another sense because it means everyone's using the same code. And it's all coming from one company. Right, it's all coming from Google who writes that code. That's right. And, and so I want to push the openness that we have. Again, for innovation, better for users. Yeah. I think the, the topic that we just talked about, as I think about um, how you incentivize creators, how you create symmetry, mm. um, it means that for both the existing web and the web as it grows beyond the screen, we need better ways to have value exchange. Um, and that, that's just one of the things that we missed early on with the, with the original web. Well, kind of, except, again, at the very first, the very first cab off the rank at the very first web conference was a demonstration of DigiCash from David Chone. Right? Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, Tim yeah. actually, Tim Berners-Lee got the fact that, oh, yes, this has to be transactional. So it's not that we didn't know. It's oh, that no. We, it's that we didn't know how. <laughs> well, and, and again, I would argue... I mean, for the, some of those, uh, there are technical solutions for these, and their interfaces are terrible. Yes. Oh, God, yes. So, openness, value exchange, and again, building this and continuing to build this with multiple stakeholders. That's the, that is a structural and process activity, but it is the only way in which we have something that is a public good. So shared development, it comes all the way back full circle to this idea that this is a shared human project. Sean, thank you very much for joining us on the next billion seconds. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's good to see you. In December of 2018, at the 50th anniversary of the mother of all demos, I got a chance to speak with Sir Tim Berners-Lee. He was there both to celebrate Engelbart's amazing work and to show off some of his own, a dream to reinvent the web. 
The web that Tim invented had no way to store information about how you used it. That stuff goes into your profile. And that forced the companies that were serving up web pages to store that profile data themselves. And as it turns out, that was not a great thing because as these organizations compiled the profile data on millions of users, they were tempted to sell that data on. And so there's a lot of profile data for sale these days, profiling all of us in all sorts of ways we'd probably prefer to be ignored. Tim wants to fix that design flaw with a project that he's named SOLID. SOLID allows you to retain control of your profile information. You can store it where you want. You can use it where you want. You can share it when you want and withhold it when you want. Now, is it too late for SOLID? I mean, it's a big ask for every website to make themselves SOLID compliant. And it's a bigger ask for a business like Google or Facebook that earns money from these profiles to give all of that up. But you've got to start somewhere. And Tim is used to facing those kinds of odds. Back in 1989, there were lots of hypertext systems out there in the world. None of them had taken off. And the last thing the world needed was another one. Until Tim came along and changed the world. So who knows? Maybe lightning can strike twice and change the future of the web. If you'd like to learn more about Sean White or Mozilla or Tim Berners-Lee or Solid, click on the link to our website, nextbillionseconds.com, in the episode description. It has everything you want to take a deeper dive into the history of the web and its future. Now, has our conversation got you thinking about the first time you used the web? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our website, leave us a message on LinkedIn, tell us what you want to know about the future, and we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In our next episode, we'll bring you the finale in our new series about the future of automobiles, the next billion cars. We've explored the challenges facing the automotive industry in the middle years of the 21st century. What conclusions can we draw about the road ahead? We'll review what we've learned the next time on the next billion cars. And on the episode after that, we'll be back with the next billion seconds and a chat with futurist author and philosopher Doug Rushkoff about what it will take to reorient ourselves toward a fully human civilization. We've got great shows coming every week. You'll want to be here to listen. Big thanks to Sean White for coming on to our show. The Next Billion Seconds was written and presented by Mark Pesci, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell, and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening. <laughs>